we've been uh, talking around the conversation of, of the good life. And for those of you who haven't been there, I really cannot go and uh, revisit that. Sufficient to say that um, my thesis as I began to study Ephesians afresh some months ago was the Socrates idea of the good life. Socrates popularized the phrase, la dolce vita, of which songs, movies have been made, songs have been written. Uh, what is the good life is the question that gets asked and subliminally leaked into all of our lives. We're all the product of the perception of the good life offered to us by our parents, offered to us by our schools, the media, TV, movies, uh, society around us, the spaces, the architectural narratives that lean in, that craft the good life, tell us what the good life needs to look like. And I felt as I studied Ephesians afresh was that Paul was offering the counter to that good life. He was saying, look, I know this is a this is almost like a phone call conversation. You wish you could hear the other part. When uh, Nas calls sometimes, uh, Meryl's chatting to him, I'm, I'm going to say, what's she saying? You know, what's happening? Um, and, and that's what I feel with Paul. You're answering questions. I need to know what the questions are. This isn't just some random um, letter that he wrote, but out of his fatherly love and affection for this church that he helped plant, he is answering their questions and he's coaching them through the alternative to the good life. You can call it the God life or the gospel life if you wish. And obviously I'm incredibly aware of doing you the disservice of not being able to go through the text exegetically verse by verse, line by line. I'm have to kind of parachute in, pluck a verse or two out, comment on it, and then move to the next idea. My hope is that you would show sufficient intellectual curiosity to go and do your own homework, to look at the, the spaces around Perth. And so what are the architectural spaces that tell you what it means to be Perthian? And some of it can be good, obviously. The beach, the footy uh, oval, the river, the beaches, not just the actual the surfing culture. What are those spaces that subconsciously, subconsciously say to you, this is what it means to be Perthian? So, what we're going to do is um, I have about 30 minutes or so to land it, and again, I apologize for not being able to do justice to the subject, but grab your Bibles, please. We're going to go to the fourth chapter very quickly. I think I'll do the fourth and fifth one. I'm not sure we'll get to the sixth one. Can I add this while you turn in your uh, Bibles to Ephesians? Please be aware of the fact that we are a people at war. We don't feel that way. The, the, the pictures of World War I and the trenches and the Battle of Danville Wood um, and others, you were very aware of the fact that we were a people at war. Meryl and I walked through Kings Park the other day and we went to the memorial and all the names of Australians, Perthians, who have, Western Australians who have died during different conflicts from, I think it was World War I is where it started, all the way to Afghanistan and Iraq more recently. And what caught my attention was the repetition of certain names. I think Thompson was one of them during one of the wars. There were four or five. And my mind instantly ran, was this brothers? Was it cousins? Were they just strangers who happened to carry the same name? My mind ran to mothers whose pain it was that sons had died. Wives whose pain it was that husbands have died. Children who would never see their father again. Girlfriends whose boyfriends would never return. We know, we knew that we were at war. World War II, the great landing at Normandy. 
so wonderfully presented by Tom Hanks um, in that movie, Saving Private Ryan. So to Vietnam, you can see I have a military curiosity. I'm saying all of that in the world in which we live, where everything feels peaceful. We don't lock our cars. We don't lock our doors. We, we can go out. Our kids can play on the street. It doesn't feel like we're a people at war. And yet the reality is we are. Our war is less visible, but no less tangible. And so sometimes we self-evaluate our wrestles and struggles because we don't remind ourselves, actually, there is an enemy out there who is committed to rob, kill, and to destroy. He wants to destroy me, my relationships, my money, my home, my job, my career, my calling. He is committed with his horde of demons to our demise. I know it feels weird. I know it feels so ridiculous in a sophisticated world full of very educated people who've got, who've got uh, kind of developed their intellectual prowess to talk about demons. But isn't it interesting how many movies and genres of movies and TV shows that are so popular, Stranger Things? I don't know if you watch that. I don't know if it is here. I don't personally like those kinds of shows. I watched one of them, and I knew that I could not watch them. But there's this grapple, this wrestle with the reality of the dark world, dark times, dark spaces. And ladies and gentlemen, that's because we know it's there. We pretend it's not, and we try to live our lives as if that doesn't exist. And so in that sophisticated world of Ephesus, with a library of 1,200 to 1,500 scrolls, of this elaborate theater... Uh, with 25,000 to 24, 25,000 seats, and all that it presents, Paul's saying to them, listen, please remember, having done all to stand, put your armor on, be ready to do spiritual combat. Understand, sometimes your weariness is combat weariness. You get tired of fighting, don't you? Don't we? We get tired of that spiritual onslaught that exhausts us. Think, I'm absolutely exhausted. What have I done? I've done much. I mean, I've had a day off. I've been on vacation, and I'm exhausted. Why? Because we live in a combat zone. And I think Paul is communicating this to a people who are at that point in time living in the, one of the safest, most prosperous cities of the world. And he says, please remember, we are a people at war. Does that make sense to you? And I want to encourage you to do that. And discern the devil's devices. Remember the things that he uses against you. I don't understand that world. I wish I did. I read some theological books and I think, man, what you've done is you've simplified it. I understand that it makes it easier to grasp. But it's a mystery. The supernatural world is a mystery. But it's very, very real. When we moved to America... We bought a house in Diamond Bar, and uh, it was a beautiful house. And um, we were in but a few weeks. And obviously, we immigrated. We were weary. We were taking over this very broken church. It was costing me so much time, effort, and energy to try and even understand the complexity of the church. And I wasn't aware of the fact that almost every night, Meryl would have a nightmare. Dana or Nasser would have a nightmare. And you'd think... Growing up in Africa, being in ministry probably 20-some years, by, no, 15 years, whatever, I would know better. But one night, 3 o'clock in the morning, um, Meryl woke me up. Babe, babe, babe. I was exhausted. I was tired. 
And uh, she just said to me, I've had another nightmare. Now, I would love to tell you that I'm this spiritual giant. But actually, I was irritated to the core of my being. And I jumped out of bed and I thought, well, if I stay here, we will fight. Because I have no restraint right now. I'm not in control of my emotions. And I'm a passionate guy, you know. So I kind of burst through. We had to open two double doors that opened up into our bedroom. And, and, and uh, I was kind of mumbling to myself, for heaven's sake, woman, just go to sleep. You know, kind of being really gracious and full of mercy and kindness. And just understanding the, tr- the trouble of her soul. And as I walked out the door downstairs, just thinking, go and grab a glass of water or something, I felt like I walked into darkness himself. Now, I would love to tell you that I took the devil on and I stared him down. And I did a Stephen kind of, you know, Bex and Steve, I did a kind of one of these things. And, and he was like, whoa, whoa, you're so scary. I mean, none of that happened. I mean, none of that happened. In fact, when I, when I walked into darkness... I closed my eyes like a child. If I close my eyes, you're not there. But he was there. And all the hair on the back of my neck, uh, all three of them, they, they, they stood on end. And, and, I, and, and I started praying in tongues at the top of my voice. This wasn't a moment to be charismatic or uncharismatic. This was a moment of desperation. And the only thing I knew what to do was to pray in tongues super loudly. And I went through every room in my house, praying in tongues at the top of my voice. And then I, downstairs, then I went upstairs, then I went outside the building. I think of my neighbors had seen us. I don't think know what they would have thought as I, as I went around the inside of our property, praying in tongues and taking authority over the enemy and speaking against him and uh, brutalizing his presence in my home. You have no right. You have no authority. You know, in times like that, I'm less fussed about how the accuracy of my theology. I'm far more fussed by beating the crap out of him. <laughs> Forgive my friends. I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm, I, I, I just, I did, I, I kind of, everything I knew about prayer, I pulled out. Whatever works, I'm going to try it. You know what I mean? From a penknife to a sword, I'm going to try everything to win, you know? <laughs> It was a defining point, and I told the story in a church in Long Beach, and uh, for, uh, for whatever reason. And uh, the next time I went back to the garden, the church in Long Beach, a man walked up to me and said, I've got to tell you a story. He said, you told that story. And I said, yes, I remember. He said, my wife and I were on the edge of divorce. In fact, he said, she was on her way to Joshua Tree in the desert to go and basically mull over our divorce. And he said, I ran out of the meeting and I called her just as she entered Joshua Tree and would lose signal. He said, he said, babe, this is what Chris spoke about today. I think you need to come home. She turned, she went home. And they got friends together and they prayed through every room in the house. And realized that this was not actually a conflict between a couple. They actually really loved each other. It was an incision that the enemy had used to get at them in their most vulnerable moment. And she walked across. He said, hey, babe. And they put their arms around each other and said, it has been so good. We're actually going into the homes of others now and praying through the house to clear the house out. I don't have all the theology. I don't even know if my theology is right on these things sometimes. But you know, the well-being of my daughters and my wife is more important than me having accurate theology. You may disagree, and you are most welcome to. Dana tells, now that she's obviously older, she tells the story during that time of her being 
um, um, in a place where she would wake up as a little eight-year-old and see a dark figure in her bedroom. She didn't have the language to tell me then. We were a people in a combat zone. We are at war daily and nightly. When the lights go off, the enemy doesn't take a rest. The demon, demonic world don't chill out. Thank goodness, you know, been a tough day with Josh and Anna, but I will just chill out, have a little sundown, have a little red wine, and pick it up again tomorrow morning. They'll come with dreams, thoughts, ideas, nightmares, fears, concerns, uncertainties, doubts, vulnerabilities, which they will feed into our psyche. Paul says, don't forget to put on your armor. We think it's cute. It's what we do at kids' ministry. It's cute. You know, put on the armor of God. And, but it's sublime and powerful and amazing and ever so strong. All right. That, we didn't get very far, did we? Let's go back and try again. Ephesians chapter 4. And I don't know what's happened to my notes. They've just disappeared. All right, chapter 4. Uh, well, I'll pull a mark tapping on you and not use notes. I'm not as good as he is, but I can try. All right, here we go. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. Just pull, in, pull up this little verse, um, and then I want to get to the other thing. Here we go. Uh, chapter 4, verse, tw- verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. You see, what's Paul saying? The, the, that, that's not the good life. Lusts. And, and uh, all of those indulgences, that's not what you've learned. He says, verse 22, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, you know what happens with that verse? Put on, take off, put on, very quickly is that depending on your theology, if you are more of a Reformed background, you would say it is teaching that transforms, and it helps. Or if you're more charismatic, what you would think of is if I just have one more encounter or one more deliverance, that will set me free. My sister got divorced at age 60. Her and her husband had been in ministry for I don't know how many years. And I said to her, Kath, why did you not tell us about the extent to which your marriage was falling apart. And her words to me almost verbatim was, Chris, if only Neil had one more encounter with God. If, if only he allowed himself to go through deliverance one more time. And I said, Kathleen, it's, it's not like that. See, what Paul is giving us is language of habit. Is it wonderful? My father was delivered from alcoholism at 3 o'clock in the morning, completely Utterly and forever. An encounter. He fell on his knees. His pancreas was falling apart. And he fell on his knees and he said, Jesus, if you heal me, I will follow you the rest of my life. And Jesus healed him. And that's over 30 years ago. And he's never touched a lick of liquor again. He's never gone there. He's just never embraced that story. His Afrikaner culture demands a full bar and he has it. So that he can offer because it's being a good host. But he has not touched alcohol since then. Now we celebrate those high points. We celebrate the high encounter moments. And we want them and we yearn for them and we long for them. And we love those moments where a word 
preached hits us like a two by four on our forehead and we are just so stunned by it, startled by it, we say, absolutely, I'm in, count me in, and change happens. But those two are rare. I think what Paul gives us is a habit. You know, when there was the great divorce of the church, when the, when the reformers and the Protestants moved away from the Catholics, it was a bit like a divorce saying, I will take this and you take that. You know what happens in a divorce? You take the car, I take the caravan. Well, the reformers took teaching, took the Bible, took the pulpit, and took great theology, but the Catholics took mysticism. Poorly called. Silence and solitude. Meditation, reflection, the darkness of the soul, the process and habits of spirituality. And so we Protestants lost out on this great volume and history until someone like a Dallas Willard came along and reintroduced us to the beauty and the wonder of some of those key things that we frowned upon. We dismissed as irrelevant because they weren't part of our divorce settlement. But God in His kindness has been giving us back. I cheated. I looked at what Mark and the others have been preaching on before I got here. And this whole idea of Jesus being our rabbi, which was I go to be with Him, I want to become like Him, and then I do the things He did at first. I go to be with Him, come Jesus said, and follow me. I become like Him, I will make you fishers of men. I will do the things you did at first. Those three things are the, is the rabbinical language. And into this idea of take off, put on, is the habit of following my rabbi Jesus. And the mercies on you every morning. So every morning I take off the old. I create a new language. I create a new neural pathways. I rewrite my mind. And I create a new neural pathway where I, using me as an example, Growing up in the home of such chaos, I was an angry young man. On the outside, compliant. On the inside, giving my dad the middle finger. If I gave him the middle finger, he would have taken my head off. So I just did it internally. But what happens is you bubble inside. You swirl and you twirl. And so I created a habit of hold it down, hold it down, hold it down, blow. Hold it down, hold it down, hold it down, blow. And then I read this. And it wasn't deliverance that changed it. Someone prayed for me, oh, I can see a spirit of anger on you. Come out in Jesus' name. Glory to God. It wasn't that. It wasn't even preaching. I preached through Ephesians. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So my poor wife had to submit to us having 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning conversations. Because we're not letting the sun go down on our anger. Praise God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. And what happens? We just fought and got more and more tired and we forgot what we were fighting about. But we were not going to let the sun go down on our anger. Teaching didn't change. What changed it? It was the rabbinical habit of taking off the old. God, I have anger in me. I have an anger addiction. An old pastor said that to me one day. I hated him for it. He said, Chris, you've got an anger addiction. You know that? I said, no, I haven't. (laughs) You want a piece of me? I'll show you. I'll learn you a few things about anger. And he says, understand you'll always be an addict. I hated that. You'll always be an addict. And he said, every day, you've got to wake up and take the anger off. 
because there's mercies on you every morning. I wake up in the morning, I say, God, I take off my anger. Take off this addiction I have. And I put on the, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. My wife needed kindness. My kids needed kindness. Well, well, if you just didn't act the way you acted, I wouldn't get angry. No, they needed kindness. This is an appeal to a higher order. Do we love teaching? Oh, absolutely. Do we love God encounters? I never tired. Not 42 years later have I tired watching people's countenance change as the presence and power of God comes upon them. But sadly, there's also a third way, which is recrafting habits by rewriting the neural pathways in my mind as I follow my rabbi Jesus and I become like him. And every morning I take off the old. And Jesus, I want to be like you. I want to walk like you. I feel a song coming on. (laughs) Isn't that the beauty of a Jesus-centered story? Where where every day I I can appeal to my great and wondrous high priest, my apostle, my savior, my redeemer. My life transformer, Jesus, and I can put him on. And t- What is yours? Is it lust? Every day I take it off. These women are beautiful. They're made in your image, Imago Dei. You have crafted every part of womanhood in beauty and wonder and awe and majesty. It gives us a little peep into a world of eternal purity and holiness. I take that off. Covetousness, I want my neighbor's car, house, or job. No, God, I take off that covetousness that, that, that puts his sticky fingers all over me. I'll drive this old car. Funny story, you want a funny story? I drove a Land Rover, LR3 Discovery, I think it's called here. And... Uh, when I was here last time, I left it in my garage, 200,000 miles, but I loved that car. I loved the Land Rover. I loved Merrill. I, I loved Merrill. I loved the Land Rover. And, um, and when we got back the last time, I, I should have let someone drive it. The sediment settled, the engine blew, and, and I lost the car. And uh, anyway, so I looked for another car. Ended up buying Merrill, a little electric BMW, used one, beautiful little bubble. I love watching her drive it. And I, and I drive a really manly kind of go-to car, you know, a bro car, a Prius. Um, and I just feel like God laughs at me every time I get in, you know. I feel like I should get in sideways, you know. And I said, Lord, really, really, can't I just get a Ford F-150 or can I get another Land Rover? Or, no, a Prius is just great for you. And I, really, I... See, I don't know why I'm telling that story, but every day I, I take off and I put on. I say, Rabbi Jesus, I want to be like you. Every day I want to create a new habit until that new habit is a new rhythm of my life. And, and I'm like you. And, and you know, folks, the enemy lies to us to f- that we feel like it, it offers an inferior life. It offers a poorer quality of life. It, it feels like we will lose something. 
But, but the wonder when we replace the narrative that we live in with his narrative and his habits and his thinking pattern, actually something far more exquisite emerges, something more, more majestic, more, more pure, more, more glorious. The, the sense of lying in your bed at the end of the day as you take that beautiful robe off, the robe of righteousness, as Meryl so wonderfully described it the other more, yesterday morning. The satisfaction of that is far more compelling than that when we live just marginally slighted by sin. There's just a little shadow over our eyes. There's just a little memory in our minds. There's a little tainting in our hearts. There's a little sand on our hands because we have dabbled rather than in His mercy in the vulnerability of our own humanity. I love this. This is not unattainable. This is not, oh gosh, Paul set such a high standard, I'll never reach that standard. I'll white-knuckle my way, but I'll never, like that guy who, free solo, who climbed El Capitano without ropes, I'll never get there. That's not what this is. This is the intentional, everyday commitment to being with my Rabbi Jesus. I want to be with Him, I want to become like Him, and I want to do what He did at first. What am I, Mark, what time am I finished, or Josh? I just need to know if I can do something. I mean, if I should carry on the next one or not. Okay. Um, where was I? Yeah, El Capitan. Have you seen that? Climbing the free solo. It's absolutely magnificent. Anyway, all of which I'm repeating myself, but I want to leak it in because I want to make it measurable and attainable. It's not impossible, unreachable, something for the kind of super elite Christian who separate themselves in monasteries and lock themselves away from earthly challenges. But it's just every day taking off, putting on. And I take off my humanity and I put on his divinity and I become like him and the freedom that that offers. Even if you drive a Prius, it can happen nevertheless. All right. Um, should I go there, shouldn't I? Chapter 5, I've got, I've got a handful of minutes left, and, and I'd like to just at least introduce this section to you. Um, good? We good? You got Booty's power for one more? Okay. Chapter 5, I want to just land with this. And ladies, I'm sorry, but it's going to be quite focused on the men. I hope you don't mind. Chapter 5, I'm going to read from verse 25. Just a couple of verses. Remember, we're talking about the good life, perception, and what Paul is offering as the God life or the gospel life. Oh, thank you so much. You're a star. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Let me quickly tell you why I've chosen this verse. The good life, this whole new narrative of the God life or the gospel life. In the Grecian world at the time, it was not uncommon for a, for a man to take a young boy as a homosexual lover. It was also not uncommon for a man, especially men of privilege, for a man 
to get married, and his wife would then become the one who runs a home and looks after the kids, but then he would have a mistress. And she offered her the, the, the sexual satisfaction. And the wife accepted that, apparently, according to documents. So it would appear that divorce was low. Well, no woman wanted to divorce her husband because she would be tainted and stained and therefore not desirable to other men. So she accepted and lived with this, this uh, scenario of either a little boy or of a mistress. Now, into that context, Paul comes in and he offers a whole new picture of masculinity and manhood. And I want to touch on this, and I hope I can do justice in a handful of moments. But what I love about this is the restoration of manhood and masculinity that is once again under scrutiny. Once again is under the assault of the progressive left who want to remove all sense of gender identification and distinctives. The alt-right who are offering us a, a, a masculinity that is combative and elitist and a power broker, and the LBGDQ community, with whom I have a particular affection, because it's a, it's a, it's a very it's a, a silent scream. It's a scream in the dark place, especially Christians. I remember the first time in, in our first church that I had a man come into the church, and um, we sat down and had a coffee together. And his name was Grant. And he was on his way to becoming a woman. Uh, his name was, I can't remember, Ina or something as a woman. He had breasts, lived as a woman, had a dress completely trans, and responded to an altar call at another church in town. And when he walked back to his seat afterwards, the breasts were gone. And he was on medication to become a woman, to gender reassign, and lived as a woman in that space, in that church for a year, and then felt to better tell someone, in which they basically said, we think you should leave the church. We don't know how to deal with you. And he came to see me, and and he said, look, I want to tell you my story, because you can basically get rid of me too, if you want. And I said, no. I said, but I have a a favor to ask. I said, I've never, ever had the privilege of someone like you in my community. I used that word. But that doesn't mean I know how to pastor you, love you, and lead you. And we spent hours together processing his journey and his story. And one day he said to me, you know when you announce the men's camp and all the men, he said, it's my nightmare. He said, it's like you going to a woman's camp and showering with all the women, and you are supposed to be disengaged and disinterested. And I realized we had no language. We had no form. We had no space or place for people who wrestled with those sexual gender issues. And we're all sexually broken, folks. They're not worse. We all are. And when we accept the fact that we all carry a sexual brokenness, it empowers the church to become a healing community. As long as I live with a sexual scream on the inside, if they find out, which Adam said so wonderfully around the fire the other night, if they find out What will they do to me? Oh, what a story it will be when they find out they will love me. What a clarion call that will be to a world full of sexual brokenness, especially since 2009 and the iPhone. Sexual promiscuity, confusion, and distortion has crept into the homes of our kids. Paul addresses the men 
And he says to the men, husbands, he says, what I want you to do, I want you to love your wife. And that in itself leaves room for negotiation. But does that mean if she will dot, dot, dot? And then he puts the comma, and then he adds, as Christ loved the church. It now becomes Jesus becomes our yardstick. Not my culture, not my personality, not my preference, not my desire, not my interpretation. Jesus becomes this incredible culture, yardstick of what it means to love my wife. And then he adds on, and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her so that she might be holy. Now when we hear the word holy in church circles, what happens is we invariably dance to sinless. But there are, there's a broad definition of holiness. And it's, for me, in this context, the beauty of this is she is distinctively different. Remember when, Jesus, when, when the Father says to Israel, I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be so distinctively different from all other nations. Can you imagine, ma'am, how you would feel if your husband loves you so you feel distinctively different from all other women? You are never compared to, and I've done that, I sadly acknowledge. You feel distinctively Different in the eyes of a man, when you look into his eyes, you see the celebration of distinctively different. And it's a point of high applause. Richard Raw, the uh, Catholic social anthropologist, studied initiation. And I won't take long with this, but I do want to bring this in. Um, And what he did was he wrote a book called Adam Revisited. And he said, every initiation practice around the world of all societies basically teach the young men five things. Here they are. (laughs) Number one, whether it's Asia, Africa, Europe, South America, they are taught, men are taught that life is hard. I live in Orange County, California, and I want you to know our young men are taught the exact opposite of everything I'm about to read to you. Life is hard. No, we offer helicopter parents and bulldozer parents. Bulldozer parents go ahead to make sure it's as easy for our sons as possible. Helicopter parents hover overhead to make sure that no one treats them badly. But life is hard. And if I become like my rabbi Jesus, I embrace the toughness of the road long traveled as part of my journey towards manhood and my son's journey towards manhood. Secondly, you are not that important. You're not that important. Oh, Orange County says, Oh, thou art worthy, young man. Thou art worthy. What do you want to do? You you want to play sport or as many sports as you want. Thou art worthy. And then we have the thing in Orange County where no one wins. I mean, sorry, everyone wins. No one loses. And I will say, what a lot of BS. You lost. 8-0 is a loss. It's not everyone wins. It's not the, level, the fields are level, the playing fields. Well done. I always want to say to parents, the kids lose 8-0. And they walk off the field and the parents are, well played, well played. And I want to say, you're a bunch of liars. They didn't play well. Look at the score. It's 8-0. They sucked. They sucked. Tell them, you sucked. 
<laughs> so Tion and I would go and have a burger after every soccer game, and we'd go green, yellow, red. What did you play well? Boy, tell me, how did you play? Oh, Dad, I thought I played well. Okay, that's the green. Yellow, what did you do? Oh, well, I was just standing around. I got out the game for about 50 minutes. Yeah, you did. What? Red. Uh, whatever. Yeah, you really sucked. I remember the first time they had this, they had this little winning team that won every, just won, won, won. And the first time they lost, he was about eight or nine years old. The, cho- the shoulders went down. The chest went in. Oh, like it's, oh. And I, I ran onto the field and I grabbed his chest, got on my knees, and I said, buddy, you never leave a sports field that way. Now, go and thank the coach of the team that beat you. Thank them. And then we'll talk in the car. So we got in the car, and I watched him in my rearview mirror, and he was sitting there with big eyes open. And we went for our burger, and I said, you never leave a field that way. Losing is as much part of life as winning. And the extent to which you can cope with the loss determines the extent to which you can cope with the win. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Moving quickly. Sorry, this is taking way too long. Your life is not about you. Number four, you are not in control. (laughs) And number five, the highlight of all initiatives in global communities is you're going to die. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I just, I think that is so ridiculously cute. Now, what's the objective here? And I'm wanting to land here. It's because... Each community wants to make a man who is a king, a warrior, a lover, and a wise man. That's what Richard Raw says. The objective of every society is to make a young man a king who knows how to govern, a warrior who knows how to fight, a lover who knows how to be tender and embrace, and a wise man who knows how to make decisions based on what the future will be. Now, all of that to say, Paul, I believe, was fighting the prevailing culture of the day of what masculinity and manhood was presented to the Ephesian population. What is that presented to the Perthian young man? Sir, you, what were you schooled to become? Did you hide behind woman? Did you step forward to take the full responsibility for your home? Did you always excuse your own weaknesses and deferringly put them on the shoulders of a father or a mother or a sister or a wife or an ex-girlfriend or the system or the man? I love Paul's teachings because even though he wrote to a specific context, he wrote as if he was speaking to us in the 21st century, appealing once again to a brand of masculinity that carries the tenderness of affection in the one hand, and the sword of defense in the other. Restoring that picture and the wonder of that reality, I believe, is still part of God's definition of masculinity. Husbands, love your wife. Now, I'm I'm the distant kind. Sir, that is not an option in the Bible. Oh, I'm an introvert. Sorry, it's just an ongoing battle Malcolm and I are having. He's the president of the um, the Introvert International. So, so there's... 
Work with, me for, work with me for just a moment. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself to her to make her distinctively different from all others. Father, I thank you. These are but scratchy moments in a much larger and more exquisite story. Thank you that you paint such a beautiful, appealing, wooing picture of what life with you looks like in contrast to the world that appears the good life but produces brokenness, alienation, hurt, heartache. We do want to bow our knees. We do want to surrender to you. We do want to put off the old and put on the new every day by your mercy. And I just ask, Lord, in the simplicity of this text, that you would continue to journey us out of the things we believe to be true and good and put us into the things that are eternal and transformative because of Jesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself to her that she may be distinctively different. Thank you.